Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Lethem. Dr. Lethem, welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to, to be able to chat with you. I, I very much appreciate your work, um, in particular, as we'll, we'll talk about with Union with Christ and, and this excellent volume that we're going to talk about today. So really appreciate your time and your work. So. Can you uh, just tell us about your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on ministry project-wise? Okay, right. Well, I'm um, married to my wife, Joan, who's from New Jersey. So, as you may well guess, I originate from somewhere else, from London, in fact, uh, in England. We are um, currently, uh, we work in Wales at Union School of Theology, where I'm professor of systematic and historical theology. But I, myself, I've lived in the U.S. for for 28 years. I was minister in, um, a Presbyterian minister for, um, for, in two churches, one in New Jersey, one in Delaware, uh, in Wilmington. We have, what, three grown children, four grandchildren, uh, two daughters, one son of ours, and uh, two grandsons and two granddaughters. Uh, currently, I'm working on a book on the Holy Spirit and also editing a couple of volumes in a new 38-volume edition, critical edition, of the complete works of John Owen, who was a leading 17th-century theologian. Um, those are what we're working on at the moment, um, but I've just recently had released a couple of books, which actually this month, this November, are uh, coming into public domain. Oh, wonderful. Well, that, that's great to, to learn a little bit more about you. Thank you for sharing, sir. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit about your book, uh, this this tome, really? It's about a thousand pages. Uh, Systematic Theology, why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received. Right. Well, Systematic Theology, of course, encompasses the whole field of a theology of the revelation of God. It's it's really the application of the whole teaching, the holistic teaching of the Bible, not just individual passages, uh, in its widest context, uh, viewed, you might say, in a theoretical level, um, in conversation with other voices in the history of the Church, um, building upon their wisdom and interacting with them, but founded upon Scripture. So it's really asks the, uh, answers the question, what does the Bible teach? But of course, it goes beyond explicit passages of Scripture to the whole inter, interrelationship of, of, of various biblical passages, the whole teaching of Scripture, its implications and entailments. So it, you might say it's an, ex, an exploration of the Christian gospel on a developed uh, level, building upon the fact that the Bible is a historical record of God's redemptive dealings with his people down through the centuries. Why did I write it? Well, because I teach it, I've been interested in it, it was germinating in my mind for a long time, and it took, in the actual writing, probably five or six years. Um, Now, that may sound rather daunting, and to read, um, if you hear about it, and certainly it's um, scholars 
who may well be interested in it, uh, ministers too, but the one person who, uh, before the book reached its editorial stage, who read the entire manuscript, uh, teaches physics in um, Cardiff, in Wales, in high school. So I was aiming not only for people who'd had a formal theological education, but anyone who's interested in reading, who's a Christian, who's got an interest in the Christian faith, and who, um, who wants to explore it, so that it's accessible and as wide a, a, a level as possible. Yeah, that's that's a really good and, and helpful um, answer, and, and, and it is it is very easy to read um, and very accessible, so you did a very good job uh, writing this work. Uh, what what does sola scriptura mean, and, and why is it not opposed to tradition? Uh, this is a very significant question, actually. Uh, sola scriptura is a phrase which means scripture alone, and it's sometimes um, understood to imply that the only source for understanding the Christian faith is the Bible and nothing else, whatever. Now, that's not exactly true. The slogan itself does not actually date, as is sometimes claimed, from the Reformation, but from later. I think it's the 18th or 19th century, and it may even be later than that. And what it is intended to say is exactly what, actually, Scripture functioned as during the time of the Reformation and afterwards. That is to say, it is the supreme authority in all all matters of faith and conduct. So the final arbiter of what we should believe as Christians and how we should act is the Bible. It does not mean it's not the, it's that it is the only source, uh, because tradition, that's to say, tradition understood as the sum total of Christian teaching, teaching of the church down through the centuries, uh, contained in its confessions of faith, um, in its liturgies, in the writings of leading theologians, is of extreme value and we ignore it at our peril but it's not to the same level and the teaching of the church cannot sit in judgment on the Bible the Bible sits in judgment on the teaching of the church uh, but in fact the two are emphatically um, both required um, the 39 articles of the Church of England which is a reformed confession of the 16th century summed up the position very well it said the three creeds the creeds the Apostles Creed the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian the nation creed ought most thoroughly to be received and believed these creeds which have been accepted down through the centuries uh, by the church they should be most thoroughly received and believed why because they may be proved by most certain warrants of holy scripture in other words we accept them thoroughly because they conform to the bible we don't accept the bible because it conforms to the nicene creed we accept the nicene creed because we believe it conforms to the bible uh, and so there you have it. I think that uh, the Soda Scriptura points to the, the overriding and supreme authority of Scripture, but we also use other sources as well um, in helping us to understand what the Bible is saying. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's really helpful. Um, you know, those, those those men that wrote those creeds, they were studying Scripture. You know, so so they they wanted to be Bereans and to help people to develop a biblical worldview. So they weren't. They weren't not using scripture. They no. they were using scripture uh, to to help other people. And yeah. I think I think when you know just logically when people say they're opposed to tradition, it's like we all have our traditions. So nobody is really opposed to tradition. Nobody just uses the Bible. Um, That's right. So we and, don't. And if, if they 
they were, they were saying that what the, what the Holy Spirit is revealing to me is greater and more reliable than what he has revealed to 60 generations of Christians throughout the world. Um, and that is a very dangerous thing to say. Yeah, absolutely. It, it undercuts, as, as you know well, sir, uh, church history, historical theology. Yeah. So we don't need those things when yeah. obviously, clearly, we, we, we very much do, you know? So. Yeah, it's best to acknowledge it. Yes. Um, yes. Do you, do you want to say some more about why we should acknowledge it? Well, because until probably the 18th century, most heretics in the, uh, were those you know, heresy, heresy being something which attacks, undermines, and falsifies the central claims in the Christian faith. Most heretics were precisely those who said, we want to stick to the Bible only and ignore and reject man-made ideas which came from church councils. That, uh, what I just a moment or two referred to as the kind of uh, self-regarding um, assumption that what's now made known to us is superior to everything else, that was the hallmark of the heretic standard centuries. And in fact, in my work on the um, on John Owen, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, I've been reading one of the, his major opponents, John Biddle, who was a Socinian, and he had a rock-solid idea of doctrine of Scripture as the infallible Word of God, but he went on to deny and oppose virtually every teaching of the Christian faith thereafter. Mm, yeah. Mm. Why, why do you start with the doctrine of God and not with the doctrine of Scripture in this work? Well, because for two reasons, at least. One is God precedes Scripture, um, Scripture being the Word of God, um, given for us, for our, uh, for our salvation, and so on, is one of the great works which God has done in creation, in our world. But God himself precedes Scripture. Um, and we have, in any case, when we say the Bible is the Word of God, in today's uh, society, we have to ask, what is, what is the identity of the God whose word it is? Um, so it, it doesn't, saying the Bible is the word of God doesn't really convey uh, what we really want to say, because we have to ask, who is the God who has spoken? Now, the second thing is that the, 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 my argument, if there is such a thing, it, should we say the flow of what I say in this book is based upon the fact that God himself is eternal. And he is the living God. He is life itself. And he has granted contingent, finite life to his creatures, uh, humanity centrally included, of course. But we turned away. We rebelled against him and chose the way of death. But in Christ, he has acted to grant us and restore us and more than restore us and to bring us to something far greater, uh, the reception of eternal life. So that's the main central theme. And scripture, of course, and that a means along that uh, pathway to that end and so consequently I think to begin with scripture would would disrupt that that um, you might say that storyline um, and in fact the Westminster Confession of Faith put together by Puritans in the 17th century uh, says very much the same thing in chapter 1 uh, it talks about God having made no himself known and his will to his church afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the, of the truth committed the same to right so in fact, God's revelation preceded inscripturation. Uh, they were distinct, and the um, creation of 
scripture followed God's revelation. Not that it is to be distanced from it. It is the same which was committed to writing. What was committed to writing was identical uh, to what God had revealed. But nevertheless, it followed it. Yeah, that, that's really, really helpful um, to to understand and to get, get a hold of. Uh, what would you say is one of the most neglected doctrines in the church today? Well, there's quite a lot. I, I would say, first up, the first thing which occurs to me is the sacraments, particularly in evangelical circles, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in my book, I discuss the, some of the reasons for this and say quite a few things about both. Uh, uh, and it goes back almost to the idea that God's spiritual grace is something to be regarded as separate from and superior to the material world, as if God's grace cannot be conveyed to us through the means of physical uh, a- a- activities. That, I think, flies in the face of the very first statement in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and also the fact of God's, him, God himself respecting the feasts, the Old Testament feast days, which he had appointed for Israel. For example, uh, Jesus died on at the Passover, not a day earlier, not a day later. Uh, the Holy Spirit came when the fullness of time had come on the day of Pentecost, not a day earlier or later. It, indeed, he honoured those feast days he appointed in Israel. Indeed, the sacraments or the signs which go with God's covenants down through the, the years uh, were signs as much for God as they are for us. For example, in the covenant with Noah, there's the rainbow, which was a sign that God would never flood the world again same manner as he had just done. And if you read in Genesis 9, 14 to the end, you'll see that God says, when I see the sign of the rainbow, I will remember my covenant. So before they're signs for us, they're signs for God. And so in effect, God keeps his promises. He keeps his appointments. And the world of matter is integrally related to the spiritual. Therefore, we believe in the resurrection of the body, not simply a spiritual resurrection, it's a physical God created matter and spirit. The incarnation of the Son of God establishes that point, and the resurrection is clearly a physical one as well. Um, and in fact, Jesus, in his commandment to his church, um, just before his ascension, says, make the nations disciples. And the first thing is baptizing them into the name, the one name, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I think, in many respects, out of fear of being identified with the Roman Catholic Church, conservative Protestants have tended to distance themselves far too much in this respect and have neglected, both in many respects, both baptism and the Lord's Supper and thus deprived themselves of an immense uh, an immense blessing. Yeah, that, I agree. I agree. Uh, what, what would such a recovery of the sacraments look like today? Well, if you, if you <clears throat> think, firstly, that the central theme of the sacraments is Christ, we are baptized into Christ and put on Christ. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus, um, in John 6, for example, uh, says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has everlasting life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, The the, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not participation, communion, fellowship in the body and the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not koinonia, participation in the body 
of Christ. It's Christ who is portrayed for us. It is he who gives himself to us. Uh, as the Westminster Confession puts it, we receive and feed on Christ. Now, we don't think uh, of church services that uh, we'll have a sermon once a month, or we'll pray every other week, or we'll read the Bible, perhaps, or, what, twice a month? But um, or if we go from um, someone's house, we say, oh, we're not going to have any food today. Uh, it, it, the lack of the Lord's Supper is depriving uh, the church and its members of the privilege, immense privilege of feeding upon Christ, of spiritual nourishment, uh, and of participation in Christ, as Paul puts it. Now, you, you can't, you can hardly place a, a price upon that. It's an immense privilege, and to undermine it, and to neglect it, is an equally immense loss. Yeah, that's that's really, really well said. Uh, what, what do you think is the place of questions and questioning in the Christian life, not to doubt, that ultimately leads to unbelief, but to develop our convictions and grow in a biblical worldview? Well, I think we learn by asking questions, don't we? And down through the centuries, catechisms were used as a means for instruction. I mentioned the, um, the, the, the Apostles' Creed, which was an early baptismal creed in the Latin church, and uh, catechisms were used way back then, second, third centuries, and so forth, and onwards. The Reformation, many of them, Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster, Shorter Catechism, and so on. Um, the means of learning, growth, of growth in understanding, and you know, God has given us minds. We're to love the Lord our God with all our mind, as, a result, as well as all our strength and all our heart. And um, one of the great theologians of the church, or two of them, both Augustine and Anselm, had as one of their great principles that faith seeks understanding. If we believe in Christ, we want to know more of him. And questions are questioning indeed helps in that direction um, if it's guided by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that, that's really good. Um, the I know growing up in, in the church as I did and, and be, being a Christian since a young age, um, my experience was that um, that many many questioning was was not allowed in in a sense or kind of frowned on and and the more that I more that I read I saw no that that wasn't true in church history instead people were using their minds you know men like oh, I was reading Owen and Calvin and and Luther and you know more contemporary Piper Sproul MacArthur etc and so on and clearly they're trying to answer people's questions and and speak to these. Uh, subjects yeah. in in a, in a comprehensive way, and and um, so you know we're not against using the mind. In fact, you know Jesus says we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, and so rejecting yeah. questions is the hallmark more of a sect or a cult. We have to be very concerned if that's the case. Um, you know, on, on the on the civil and um, civic level, it was uh, the communist regimes of Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, and today China, which discourage uh, questions questioning and discussion of the um, policies of the ruling elite and God is not like that he encourages us to ask questions um, and, and you find that in the Bible as well yeah yeah that's that's really helpful really good um, how does how does historical theology inform a, a good under 
understanding of systematic theology. Well, I think we've already sort of touched upon that in the sense that uh, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, it takes a lot of work, spade work and effort, and then we'd find probably we've uh, at best repeated uh, what people have said in the past, possibly a lot worse. It's a great tendency if we neglect historic theology to repeat all the errors of the past, more likely. But a knowledge of the main features of you know, past Christians wrestling with the kind of problems and questions the Bible raises helps us to advance because we can benefit from what they have said and done and we can then see ahead into our own contemporary world and, and be better equipped to answer the kind of challenges which are thrown at us today. Yeah, that's that's really good. You know, I, I think one of, we were talking earlier about this and I, and I just thought of C.S. Lewis and chronological snobbery and, you know, uh, I think, I think uh, you, you know, that, that could be another reason why you know we we don't understand our times because we don't understand what has come before us and and so you know not that people don't like history i think a lot of people do like history but they don't um for whatever reason they don't uh consider church history important or necessary to understand for the reasons we've talked about to how the church has developed doctrine and and are the heroes of our faith and and other things like that what do you think? Yeah, I think that's that, that's very much the case. I mean, if we go back to uh, the Westminster Assembly, which is one of the areas I focused on and wrote a book on that, building upon the um, rapid explosion of knowledge of, uh, of their workings, um, which has happened in recent years with the rediscovery of their minutes and debates, they were constantly referring to the fathers of the early church, medieval theologians, and even uh, Roman Catholic uh, figures of, the, of their own day and the generation or two before, sometimes as authorities, not only to disagree with them, but to agree with them and to refer to them. So they were they were well conversant with that, and, and that I think is one of the, the hallmarks of their stature. Same, you mentioned Calvin. He, um, he he speaks to us today, right across the centuries, because he certainly almost has a timeless quality rooted in Scripture, but he also backs it up uh, constantly by referring to leading figures, Augustine, Chrysostom, um, people like, like that um, in support of what he's saying or to disagree with them as the case may be. Yeah, it's it's in fact, in having compare this, sitting down with reading the Bible by yourself with a concordance compared with inviting around dinner, shall we say, a dozen or half a dozen of the greatest figures in the history of the Christian church to discuss it with you. We can do that because we have their books and it's much more enriching when you have a group of people together talking about something when you're thinking about it by yourself. And who better to invite to dinner and discussion than people like Augustine, John Calvin, and Martin Luther, and uh, John Owen, and others? That's uh, that's really well said. Well, well I, th- I think maybe we've answered this next question, but I'll ask it anyway. Are there particular resources you found that are helpful for those that are new or more advanced, where they can learn more about historical theology? Well, uh, for those who are relatively new, I would uh, Mike Reeves, who's a colleague of mine, he, um, is president of Union uh, and professor of theology at Union School of Theology. He's quite well known uh, over here in America. Um, he's written a, a couple of books on leading figures in the Christian church, um, which is, and he writes on a very accessible level indeed. Um, that's That would help uh, people to get, help you to get your um, toes wet, shall we say, and if you're um, wanting to dip into it. On, on a more advanced level, um, Apollos, which is a publishing arm of inter 
capacity press in the UK. And I believe IVP in this country, in the United States, I'm in America at the moment, incidentally, they have published it over here, Shapers of Christian Orthodoxy. It's a series of um, discussions of 12 leading figures from the Church Fathers on into the Middle Ages with a summary of their life and a and their main teaching and a, a, a discussion, a critical discussion of what they've done and also a bibliography for more reading if you want to probe further. That's, I think, an excellent resource to uh, to get started on a more serious and advanced level. Yeah, those are those are all really, really good resources. Um, you've written so, so very helpfully on Union with Christ in another book of yours from PNR and also in this in this work that you've done, the systematic theology. Uh, can you please help us understand this vital doctrine and how it relates to communion with God and, and just its overall general importance to the Christian life? Okay, well, I, I think you could sum up and say salvation is being united to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith. Um, we're not saved as individuals, but as part of the Church of Christ. That means also we are brought into union with him. Um, it's First um, Corinthians 12 makes that pretty clear where the church is described as a body and Christ is the head uh, there's one organism in which he is the leader. Now that entails a number of different factors it means for example that um, he united himself to us in the incarnation. He took our nature into personal union so that the son of God, the eternal son one of the trinity is now permanently and everlastingly uh, has a human mind and a human body he uh, took our place he experienced what it is like to live in a world which is torn and ravaged by sin. He, 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 he lived from embryo uh, to infancy to childhood, being brought up by human parents, and lived as man. And so whereas uh, uh, a man, Adam, had sinned, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, put things right. Um, he obeyed God, and consequently, union with Christ is the great reality that he, having taken our place and identified himself with us in our in, in the, 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 and taken our sins upon him in, in the cross and risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, we are now united with Christ. And as Paul says, we died with him, we were raised to newness of life, and we are now seated with him in heavenly places. So in that sense, it's like captain of a team. Um, if, and I'm talking about soccer here, being more familiar with that than some other sports, uh, if, the, if, if the captain of the team scores the goal, in the last minute to win the game the whole team wins if you're on the team and played badly it doesn't matter he has he, he has brought the team victory and so the fact is that in Christ he is our captain he is the head of his body he is the head of his of God's covenant and because he died and rose again we die with him as well and so consequently as Paul says he having risen from the dead no longer to die so we also live in newness of life now simultaneously the Holy Spirit indwells us and changes us. And Paul describes uh, the Christian life as a resurrection, a new creation or regeneration. It's, uh, as we've already intimated, rising to newness of life. There's a transformation which will take place so that when Christ returns, we will see him in glory and we will be like him. So in fact, it encompasses the entire experience of salvation. And of course, in that last element at the return of Christ, it goes it boggles the mind if you reflect on passages such as that in 1 John chapter 3 for you know, it, 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 it 
transcends the capacities of our understanding. Uh, it's not yet evident what we shall be, but we know, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, and it affects things, for example, like assurance and the expectation of the final judgment. Many people are really scared and horrified, even Christians, to think about the last judgment. But the point is, when that takes place, we will already be glorified as the Christian. All the members of the, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ will be like Christ in glory at that time. So for the Christian, there's nothing to fear about the last judgment. It is a fearful thing for those outside to fall into the hands of the living God. But for believers, that's quite a different matter. Yeah, that that's really, really a helpful answer. Very, very well said. Um, who have been some of the most significant theological influences on your or in your own theological development? Well, maybe too many to list. And I'm not sure that any one more than any other would have influence, but I, I like to read widely uh, from all branches of the church and from all parts and times. And even with those I disagree, there's always something to appreciate. Uh, even those who are right off the mark, if you there are some positive things which you can glean from what they've said. I suppose Calvin must rank pretty highly, but somewhere up top there. Um, Athanasius, Cyril of Alexandria, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, from the Fathers, Anselm, Middle Ages, Calvin, and many of the Reformed writers since the 16th and 17th centuries. And there's a lot from the last hundred years as well, um, too. So, And one learns a lot. Just one example, uh, Matthew Bates and his work on the uh, birth of the Trinity, on the exit of the biblical interpretation of Jesus, the Apostles, and the Fathers is an astounding piece of work. And so I think one's open to be influenced from all uh, sources which are seeking faithfully to explore uh, Scripture and the Christian Gospel. Yeah, that, that's really good. Really good. I like that. Uh, what does it look like to grow in maturity as a Christian theologian? A good example, I think, we have in the Bible, Paul, uh, Apostle Paul, early on in his ministry, he describes himself as less than the least of all the saints. Later on, um, it's, I think, isn't it, in Ephesians, he says he's the least of, well, firstly, he says he's the least of all the apostles in First Corinthians, uh, born out of due time. Later on, he goes on further to say he's less, in Ephesians, less than the least of all the saints. So from being at the bottom of the list of the apostles, wow, that's, even that would be quite an achievement, wouldn't you think? Quite a privilege. By his middle period, we may say, he is less than the least of all the saints. List all the Christians in the entire world. Paul says, I am the least of them. But in his last writings, um, in First Timothy, he says that he is the chief of sinners. In other words, list all the sinners of the world. He is the greatest. So as Paul grows as a Christian, he becomes increasingly aware of his own sinfulness and of his own need of grace. Uh, so I think that is the mark of growing in maturity as a Christian theologian, because the more you're aware of the sinful inclinations of your own heart, the more you're aware of your need of grace, and the more Christ will, will take centre stage. Um, and that's true of everyone who's a believer in Christ. 
Christ. And it must be true also of theologians. And that was the case in the early church. Oregon, Gregor Nazianzus, Augustine, and others, down through the ages, they all say the first qualification of a Christian theologian is to recognize the fact that we are in need of both grace and enlightenment. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, are there are there some, you were talking about some of this, but, but are there some markers that we should look for um, and grow in as the Christian theologians? Well, I, I would think that's the one I just said is a prerequisite, of course. Um, yeah, I think you have to say that um, your theology should be God-centered, and that means, of course, Christocentric as well, Trinitarian. And, and I always think that there's, in, the mo- in recent times, there's been a preoccupation with you know, human needs, human ch- um, um, demands, and so on, which has a place, quite obviously, but it cannot be made um, cru- um, crucial and central for Christian theology. It must be focused upon God. The knowledge of God brings with it knowledge of ourselves in its way. I mean, Job, at that end of chapter 42, of his, um, well, beginning of chapter 42, end of the book of Job, uh, he says, I have heard of you the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. It advanced in his knowledge of God. And then he says, therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. Knowledge of himself followed from, in the wake of him, was inseparable from um, the knowledge of God, which came in and through the um, excruciating experiences he'd undergone. I, I think all of that's really, really, really helpful. Um, I think one one thing um, that I would add, two things I would add, I think as we grow as Christian theologians, we'll obviously grow in, in, in being able to recognize truth from error, and oh, yeah, then, yeah. We'll, then we'll be able to, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, we'll be able to speak the truth in love, and not just truth, you know, to, to be truthful or to be discerning, um, but but to be truthful for the sake of love. Um, yeah, right. Well, two must go together. There's quite a lot of people who speak truth, but um, not necessarily with love. And the other hand is people who, who espouse love all the time, but with a little concern for truth. Yeah, that's that's well said. Well said. Well, sir, um, where can people uh, learn more about your work online or on social media or otherwise? Well, I'm not, uh, I must confess, um, especially uh, knowledgeable or adapt in social media uh, I, uh, for one reason or another, but I think the thing to do is just do a Google search. That gets you uh, pretty quickly there, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. People can people can definitely Google you and, yes. and find your Amazon page and, and yeah. other things that you've you've written, so that's really yeah. good. Um, well, there's a lot that we haven't uh, talked about in the course of this interview, and just as we wrap it up, do you have any takeaways for our listeners? Um, only to say that um, we are to, as Hosea put it, press on and to know the Lord, and that in every way, whatever our gifts and whatever our inclinations are, or our time, and so on, that is a major priority. And remember, too, that the Word of God applies to all of life. You know, Christ is mediator of the whole of creation, so the whole world is His. And so whether you're in a banking, academia, teaching, um, whether you're in industry, or whatever it is, the whole world belongs to Jesus Christ. 
Christ, and that therefore um, what we just said about theology is applicable in other ways, but from the same basic premises as we've tried sort of you know, partially and no doubt imperfectly to outline in this broadcast. Well, I, I've so enjoyed our time today, Dr. Lethem, and I really appreciate the work that you do and, and continue to do at, at Union School of Theology and, and through your written work. Uh, it, it's uh, excellent and very helpful. So. Well, thank you very much. Glad to hear it and hope, uh, hope it uh, proves useful for people. Amen. Well, I hope you have a great rest of your day, sir. Sure, and you too. And best wishes to everyone who hears this. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next.